I heard a heavy footstep approaching behind the great door and saw through the chinks the gleaming of a coming light. Then there was the sound of rattling chains and the clanking of massive bolts drawn back. A key was turned with a loud grating noise of long disuse and the great door swung back. Within stood a tall man, clean shaven save for a long white mustache and clad in black from head to foot without a single speck of color about him anywhere. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp in which the flame burned without chimney or globe of any kind, throwing long quivering shadows as it flickered in the draft of the open door. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture, saying in excellent English, but with a strange intonation, Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own will. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Well, hello there. Welcome to the 42nd episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and here I like to go beyond just simple movie reviews and talk about a little history behind the film. And since today is Halloween, I thought I would look at the 1931 film Dracula. The opening bit was from the Bram Stoker novel Dracula, in which Jonathan Harker first arrives at Dracula's castle. Anyway, there are so many things to talk about when it comes to this film, Dracula. One thing I should mention that I think is commonly known, but I should talk about anyway, is the fact that this film is very, very loosely based on Bram Stoker's novel. In fact, very little of Stoker's actual story is used. It's actually based upon a stage play. But before we get into the film, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the film's legendary star, Bela Lugosi. He was born Bela Ferenc de Blasco in Hungary on October 20th, 1882, near the western border of Transylvania, not far from the Carpathian Mountains in a town called Lagosh. That town he would later take as his last name. He was the youngest of four children. He always had a love of acting, much to the anger of his father, a strict businessman. He disapproved, so Bella left home at a young age, dropping out of school. By the early 1900s, Bella was an established actor in Hungary. In 1913, he became a member of the National Theater of Budapest. Although actors at the time were exempt from military service, he still volunteered for the service and fought at the Russian front during World War I, in which he was wounded. After the war, he returned to acting, but also took part in the political revolution in Hungary, taking an active role on behalf of the Actors' Union. Unfortunately, he was on the wrong side. After the collapse of the Hungarian Soviet Republic in 1919, many leftists and trade unionists were imprisoned or executed in public, so Bella took off to Germany. There he continued his acting career, co-starring in at least 14 German silent films in 1920. That same year, he left Germany and took off for the United States. 
He entered through New Orleans in December 1920 and made his way to Ellis Island in New York. Now, Bella was a very handsome man. He often played a ladies' man, and he planned on continuing his acting in America, but of course, not speaking English, well, that was a huge obstacle. For a while, he did manual labor before he formed a Hungarian stock company. To act in his first English-speaking play, called The Red Poppy, he learned his lines phonetically, which is actually pretty amazing. Eventually, he worked his way up to playing in both stage and film. He played classical character roles in Europe and America, including everything from Shakespeare to romantic leads. But then, in 1927, he got the role that changed his life, a Broadway production of Dracula. The show ran for 33 weeks on Broadway and toured for two more years. After the play, he moved to Hollywood. The film Dracula wasn't the first attempt at Bram Stoker's characters. F.W. Moreau made an unauthorized version in 1922 called Nasferatu, a version that the courts ordered, after a lawsuit by Stoker's widow, that all prints of the film be destroyed. Luckily for us, some prints survived, because it's an amazing movie. Carl Lemley was the co-founder and owner of Universal Pictures. In 1928, Lemley Sr. made his son, Carl Lemley Jr., the president of the studio. Against his father's wishes, the younger Lemley bought the rights to the novel Dracula. He paid $40,000 for all rights to the novel and the stage plays. The senior Lemley only agreed to let him make the film after he heard that the other studios were planning on making their own vampire movies. Lemley's original idea was to base the film primarily on the novel and do it in a grand scale. To accomplish this, he hired Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Louis Bromfield to write the script. Now, Bromfield's idea was to have Dracula be a ghoulish old man at the beginning of the film, like in the book, and later in London, he would use blood to rejuvenate himself and become younger. In fact, he was writing his script as close to the novel as possible starting with Jonathan Harker traveling to Transylvania. But at the time, the studio was having some financial problems, and then there was the stock market crash. So the budget was slashed, and Bloomfield's script was deemed unshootable. Also, I read that it might have been a little too risque for 1931. Garrett Fort was brought in, and he turned to the famous hit play. The play was the first authorized adaption of Stoker's work. It was originally written by Hamilton Dean in 1924 in England. When it came to Broadway in 1927, it was updated for American audiences by John L. Blatterstone. Now, the stage play condensed the novel by reducing the number of characters, such as Lucy and Mina becoming one single character. It cut the whole Jonathan Harker visiting Dracula's castle part and his three vampire women and instead it turned the story into more of a parlor mystery type thing. The story began with Lucy already sick at the sanitarium and Abraham Van Helsing arriving to help. Very little of the book was actually used for the play. For the film, of course, they added Dracula's castle with Renfield instead of Jonathan Harker visiting the castle. This was a very economical idea since now you can cut the whole Jonathan Harker escaping and arriving back in London. And rather than having Dracula old and ugly at the beginning, like in the book, he begins as Bela Lugosi. 
The book describes the Count this way. His face was a strong, a very strong aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and particularly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead, and hair growing scantily around the temples, but profusely everywhere. His eyebrows were massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth, as far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with particularly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality for a man of his years. For the rest, his ears were very pale, and at the tops extremely pointed, The chin was broad and strong, and the cheeks firm, though thin. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. Hired to direct the story was Todd Browning. Browning had been a carnival sideshow and circus entertainer, then a vaudeville performer. During his time in the circus, working with the freak show gave him a lifelong morbid fascination that could be seen in his work. He eventually became one of the Silent Era's highest-paid writer-directors. He began working in silent films in 1914. His films would often contain outsiders and misfits. He partnered with Lon Chaney Sr. and directed him in such films as The Unholy Three in 1925 and The Unknown and London After Midnight in 1927. He actually wanted to have Cheney play the lead role of Dracula, but unfortunately, Cheney died of throat cancer in 1930. Apparently, Lemley was not at all interested in Lugosi, in spite of the good reviews he had while playing Dracula on the stage. Many other actors were tested or considered, including Paul Mooney, Chester Morris, Ian Keith, John Ray, John Carradine, and Conrad Veidt. Veit, the German-born British film actor, would have been interesting since he was just in The Man Who Laughs a few years earlier. Lou Ayers was eventually hired to play Dracula. When Ayers was cast in another Universal film, he was replaced by Robert Ames. Ames was then recast with David Manners. Now, at the same time while this was going on, the play Dracula starring Lugosi had been showing in Hollywood. Lugosi began lobbying hard for the part. Eventually, he got his wish, and David Manners was recast as John Harker. One reason Lugosi might have got the role, so it is said, was that he was willing to take a reduced pay. He received a paltry $500 per week salary for seven weeks' work, amounting to $3,500. This is about a quarter of what they were offering the other actors. It's odd to think that now we associate Dracula with the way Bella speaks. I mean, whenever we hear somebody parody the Count, it's usually with his Hungarian accent. Even the Count on Sesame Street sounds like Bella. But in the book, Dracula goes to great lengths to speak perfect English, and even Jonathan Harker comments on his good English. The reason why Lugosi sounds as he does was when he first started acting in American English plays, Not knowing how to speak English, he learned his lines phonetically. The spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. The blood is the life, Mr. Renfield. One of his most famous lines... I never drink. Why? 
was not part of the novel or the play, but original to the film. But it became so famous that, that it would later be added to stage productions from then on. Now, I don't think that I have to really describe the plot, but simply, a Transylvania vampire travels to London. He is Count Dracula, who is so charming and handsome that no woman can resist his advances. He meets Dr. Stewart, his daughter Mina, her fiancé Jonathan Harker, and a family friend Lucy. Lucy becomes his first victim, and then he goes after Mina. Dr. Van Helsing does his best to battle the blood-sucking beast. Can Jonathan Harker and Van Helsing save Mina from being destroyed by the vampire? Now, oddly, there were actually three films made at the same time. There was Todd Browning's sound film that we all know, but they also made a silent version for theaters that didn't have sound films, and then there was a Spanish version that was made at the same time with the same script, but at night after the American crew went home for the day. And to talk about that, we have Russell. Take it away, Russell. There have, of course, been many Dracula films. In fact, his most frequently filmed subject title in movie history. There was the Universal Dracula Film Cycle, the Hammer Dracula Film Cycle, Andy Warhol Draculas, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, Historic Draculas, Comedy Draculas, Romantic Draculas, Anime Draculas, Silent Draculas, Freddy Draculas, and even a Dracula for the Deaf. You can spend many happy hours on YouTube chasing these down, but one of the most curious is the Spanish-language Dracula, made in 1931 by Universal, at the same time on the same sets as the Bela Lugosi version. Why, you may ask, why not just dub or subtitle the English version? Well, in the silent period, Hollywood had a lucrative worldwide market of silent movies could be watched and understood anywhere in the world, but the coming of sound created a language barrier. Subtitles had actually been used for French greetings of pioneering Talkie the jazz singer, but the audience disliked them intensely. Plus, a large portion of the world audience had limited reading skills, and in the pre-electronic days, they were expensive and complex to do. As for dubbing, early sound cameras were ponderous things in big boxes called blimps, which is why many early Talkies, including the Lugosi Dracula, looked so stagey compared to 20 silent films and it was difficult to effectively dub sound at this time. This is why many early talkies didn't have music augmenting the dialogue scenes. It was only used for titles and separate non-talking establishing and action scenes. In some cases, studios did versions with multilingual casts, with an English take, French take, German take and so on. The 1929 movie Atlantic about the Titanic disaster was made in this way. Universal decided to do Spanish versions of certain movies for the Central and South American market, which brings us to Spanish Dracula. The Spanish language version stars Carlos Valeris as Conde Dracula, Lupito Tuvar as Eva Seward, Barry Norton as Juan Harker, Pablo Averis Rubio as Renfield, Eduardo Arosamima as Van Helsing, Jose Serena Ovaya-Sosca as Dr. Seward, and Carmen Guaro as Lucia. 
It was directed by George Melford and exactly parallels the Lugosi flick. Melford would even watch the daily rushes of the Lugosi version and apply them to his own version. The main differences thus are in the casting, the tone of performances and movie length. The Spanish Dracula runs 104 minutes against the English version's more economical 75 minutes. Several of the scenes are extended compared to the English version, and there are a few extra ones, including some comic relief of Renfield's Keeper in the Asylum. There are assorted differences to the interior scenes, such as the addition of mist as Dracula rises from his coffin, plus we get to see Renfield's graphic demise. While Dracula was pre-code, it was already sounding close to the wind of depicting a blood-drinking monster, so it lacked the suggestiveness of other films of the period, such as the original Maltese Falcon, which was made the same year. This did not seem to worry Malford, however, and Lupita Tavares' Eva is a good deal more vivacious and sexy than Helen Chandler as Mina, and has a more revealing costume. Renfield is also quite different. Pablo Rubio turns in a manic performance, while Carlos Valeris as Dracula is the film's weakest link. He simply is not Bela Lugosi and delivers intense expressions and muggings more typical of early silence. It's interesting to think how this movie would have been with Bela playing Dracula, as he was actually still speaking phonetically at this stage, so he could have done the lines in Spanish as well as he did in English. The Spanish Dracula opened Havana, Cuba on March 11, 1931 and also screened in New York and Los Angeles a few months after the Lugosi film. It would have been possible to see both versions the same day. It did not, however, do good business. Advances in movie sound meant that dubbing an English movie was now the easiest alternative, so separate language versions faded away. The film disappeared after its initial release and became lost for many years, but an incomplete print was discovered in New Jersey in the 1970s and a complete one turned up in Havana. Extant prints are a combination of these two, sometimes jarringly obviously so. A VHS release was made in 1992 and was also released on DVD in 1999 and 2004 as part of the Universal Horror Legacy sets. A special restored version appeared in the 2012 Blu-ray, allowing it to be seen by far more people than during its original release. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Russell. And, you know, I have the Universal box set, and it does contain the uh, Spanish-language version, though I haven't had a chance to watch it. But I did watch the English versions with the commentary tracks. There's two on the DVD, and both of them say many times... This scene they cut short. To see what was supposed to happen, check out the Spanish version because the scene's intact and full there. I'm going to definitely have to watch that. But thanks a lot, Russell. Some very interesting stuff there. Now that you have learned what you have learned, it would be well for you to return to your own country. I prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. Here's a few trivia bits about Dracula. The shots of the ship as Dracula travels to England were taken from a silent film called The Stormbreakers. If the footage seems a little sped up, that's because of the different frame rates used in silent and sound films. Feralto. Yes, Nosferatu. The undead. The vampire. The word Nosferatu which is used a lot in Bram Stoker's book and was the title of the 1922 silent film, has a sketchy origin. It seems it comes from the British author and speaker Emily Gerard, who used it in her 1895 magazine article, Transylvanian Superstition. 
She wrote, More decidedly evil, however, is the vampire, or Nasferatu, in which every Romanian peasant believes as firmly as he does in heaven or hell. There are two sorts of vampires, living and dead. The living vampire is generally the illegitimate offspring of two illegitimate persons. But even a flawless pedigree will not ensure anyone against the intrusion of a vampire into his family vault, since every person killed by an Asferatu becomes likewise a vampire after death and will continue to suck the blood of other innocent people till the spirit has been exorcised, either by opening the grave of the person suspected and driving a stake through the corpse or firing a pistol shot into the coffin. Well, that's where Bram Stoker got it from, believing it was an actual Romanian word for vampire, but in reality, there's no word Nosferatu in Romanian or anywhere else. To this day, the origins of that word are unknown, but nowadays it means vampire, so it is a word now, right? In Stoker's earlier drafts of the book, the character was named Count Vampire, but after learning about Vlad the Impaler, who was known as Dracula, or Draculia, he changed the name without ever doing any real research into the real Vlad. I am Dracula. Oh, it's, it's really good to see you. Other actors in the film were Edward Van Sloan as Professor Van Helsing. A moment ago. I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. If I had one complaint about his portrayal of Van Helsing, is his pacing. They could have cut five minutes out of this movie by having Van Helsing talk at a decent pace. Anyway, Sloan was an American character actor who lived from 1882 to 1964. He had played the role of Van Helsing on the stage and would go on to play similar characters in many Universal Studio horror films, such as Frankenstein in 1931 and The Mummy in 1932. He had a long career, but many of his roles were uncredited. David Manners, a Canadian-American actor who lived from 1900 to 1998, played Jonathan Harker. He would go on to play the archaeologist in The Mummy the following year. But Manners hated acting in films. He much preferred the stage. And although he would go on to be a leading man over the next few years, he got frustrated with Hollywood and retired from acting in 1936. Mina is played by Helen Chandler, who lived 1906 to 1965. She was a film and theater actress, but she had a very short acting career, and it was over by 1938. She had a problem with the bottle and was in and out of sanitariums. Sadly, in 1950, she was badly burned in a house fire when she fell asleep while smoking. Her alcoholism continued throughout her life. Frances Dade, who lived 1907 to 1968, plays Lucy. She was an American film and stage actress of the late 20s and early 30s. She also had a very short acting career, retiring in 1932 after marrying wealthy socialite Brock Van Avery. After they divorced, she became a nurse. Of course, one of the most remembered characters from the film was Renfield. Why, he's mad. Look at his eyes. 
Why, the man's gone crazy. In this film, he's played by the always entertaining Dwight Fry. One wonders if Fry, who had been a quality stage actor before taking this role, ever regretted being in the film. Because after, he was almost always typecast as a mentally unbalanced character. But 1931 was a pretty big year for Fry, as he was in this film, he played Wilmer Cook in the first film version of The Maltese Falcon, and Fritz in the Karloff James Wales film Frankenstein. In fact, he would be in four other Frankenstein films, always as a different character. A couple of his other films were The Vampire Bat and The Invisible Man. But as time went on, he was reduced to uncredited roles, his last in 1943, because that same year, Dwight Fry died of a heart attack at the age of 44. Flies? Flies? Poor, puny things. Who wants to eat flies? You do, you loony. Not when I can get nice, fat spiders. All right. Have it your own way. There was obviously a rush to make this film because there are a few glaring mistakes, such as in several scenes you can see cardboard taped to table lamps. This was probably done for close-ups where they wanted the glare from the light toned down, but was left on and no one noticed. And this isn't something that's just in the background. There's one shot where it's right up front. There are also some odd cuts like... During the Dracula Renfield scene in the castle at the beginning, Dracula has a bottle of wine in his hand, and then it jump cuts to another angle, and suddenly he has Renfield's notebook in his hand, and he's setting it down on the table. This is most likely because a whole section of dialogue was cut in which Dracula attempts to discover if Renfield would be missed if he fails to return. Now, apparently the filming of Dracula was a constant battle between Todd Browning and the studio. Bella Lugosi later told how the studio was constantly interfering, trying to get Browning to shoot it for cheaper. Everything that Todd Browning wanted to do was queried. Couldn't it be done for cheaper? Wouldn't it be just as effective if? That sort of thing. It was most dispiriting. Once the film was completed, it was 84 minutes, but was cut down to 75. That might be the reason for the choppy editing in the film. Come on, Universal, 84 minutes was too long? Anyway, the film does have its problems, but in my opinion, it's still a hugely enjoyable watch. But does everyone agree? Let's go to Rotten Tomatoes. It gets an 82% audience score, which is pretty good for a film that's 90 years old. Max W. gave it 4.5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote... A classic film whose only fault comes from the lack of necessary film equipment not yet perfected. Well, Max, maybe, but I'm going to be honest. There's a bit wrong with this film that the necessary film equipment wouldn't have fixed. But you're right, it is classic. Ethan W. gave it the full five stars, and he wrote, Here comes Drac. I do not drink dot 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 wine. Ah, children of the night. What music they make. Bella in a big black cloak setting out the rules for all vampire films to come. Great sense of atmosphere. That accent and those eyes. The black and white filmography. The clouds, the mist, the grand old man of the vamps. I agree, Ethan, but really you didn't have to quote some of the famous lines from the film. Um, 
And I think you mean black and white photography, not filmography, but I could be wrong. Most of the reviews were good on there, but ah, there's always a few, right? Augustin H. gave it two and a half out of five stars, and he wrote, This Dracula is too crude and boring to make me care, except for Mr. Harker. Why the hell did he get so irascible and stupid all the time? I don't know what to say to that, Augustin. Dracula, crude and boring? <laughs> and then, to be honest, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then there's Matt H., who gave it only two stars, and he wrote, It just hasn't aged well. There's barely a story here. And it was culturally huge at the time, and pretty much every Dracula stereotype comes from this movie, but taken on its own, it just isn't a very good movie. Still an important movie, but after basically seeing this movie through cultural osmosis, it just doesn't hold up. And I'll piss off people by saying that the Mel Brooks spoof Dracula Dead and Loving It is a better interpretation than this movie. Lugosi deserves all the credit for giving the second iconic version of vampires to popular culture, Nosferatu being the first, but the less dominant one in a cultural psyche. First of all, um, do you really think that uh, you're going to anger people by saying Dracula Dead and Loving It's a better interpretation of the novel? Well, it is because I think the Brooks film is a parody of Coppola's film, which is the closest to the book anyone has done yet. But really, Matt, you're not going to piss anybody off. Now, one interesting part about this film is the music. There is um, very little of it. There's the opening theme, which is pretty great. And then there's other music, but only when it's music that's in the film, like when they're at the opera, you hear the opera. This was done a lot in the early days of sound. They really didn't get it together and figure out how music could work with dialogue. But in this case, I think it works really well. There's something about that lack of music that makes this more chilling. Of course, many people have done their own soundtracks. I think even Philip Glass has a soundtrack, so you can find it with music if you want to look for it. Well, when it was all said and done, Dracula from 1931 was a huge success for Universal. And that, of course, led to a whole series of Universal horror flicks like Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Wolfman, and pretty much ending with The Creature from the Black Lagoon. By this time, the gypsies, seeing themselves covered by the Winchesters and at the mercy of Lord Geldamine and Dr. Stewart, had given in and made no resistance. The sun was almost down in the mountaintops, and the shadows of the whole group fell long upon the snow. I saw the count lying within the box upon the earth, some of which the root had fallen from the cart and had scattered over him. He was deathly pale, just like a waxen image, and the red eyes glared with a horrible, vindictive look which I knew too well. As I looked, the eyes saw the sinking sun, and the look of hate in them turned to triumph. But on that instant came the sweep and the flash of Jonathan's great knife. I shrieked as I saw it shear through the throat, whilst at the same moment Dr. Morris's bowie knife plunged into the heart. It was like a miracle, but before our eyes, and almost in the drawing of a breath, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. I shall be glad as long as I live that even in that moment of final dissolution, there was in the face a look of peace such as I never could have imagined might have rested there. 
The castle of Dracula now stood out against the red sky, and every stone of its broken battlements was articulated against the light of the setting sun. Mina Harker's Journal, November 6th. Okay, corral. Okay, corral. There the outlaw band make their final stand. Okay, corral. Burt Lancaster as the famous Wyatt Earp. Kirk Douglas as the notorious Doc Holliday. Two men as different as day and night, yet fate linked them together through the violent years. Get going down the back stairs. Much obliged, Marshal. Hit the third! A little bit before I go. You know, Bella got a bad deal in Hollywood. He was always underpaid and then forgotten about. And it might have been his own fault. I don't know. And, you know, for the record, while I really enjoy the Tim Burton film, Ed Wood, and, and I think Martin Landau did a great job playing Bella Lugosi, it's, well, highly fictionalized. Bella comes off as a simple man who doesn't quite know what's going on, and that wasn't true at all. Bella knew exactly what kinds of films he was making with Ed Wood. In fact, I read that he first turned down Ed Wood's offer to be in a film, but it was his wife who convinced him to take the job because they needed the money. Do you remember Bella Lugosi's wife in the movie Ed Wood? No, neither do I. And you know, Bella Lugosi did not meet Ed Wood while trying out coffins in a coffin shop. Next week, we're going to do another episode of What's Wrong With This Picture. This time, we're going to talk about the 1957 film Gunfight at the OK Corral. This is a very entertaining movie, but historically, well, let's just say it got a few things wrong. Now, listen up. We have a Facebook page. We would love for you to join our group and uh, comment once in a while. We love getting comments. We also have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. And if you're keeping track, we're still holding at 40 followers. We could use a few more. And you know, I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. You can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid, all being one word. You can email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. And if you could leave me a review at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Russell, I want to thank you for contributing to today's show. Very interesting stuff. And we'll be back next week with Gunfight at the OK Corral. Take care. Stay healthy. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Yeah. Multipass. You know it's multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.